Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. It's uh, it's good to be back after a little trip back east to Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago, which then extended into a trip to the American Midwest. I've never been to places like Kentucky and Tennessee and Missouri. At least I would have said that a couple weeks ago. Now I have. It was an interesting experience, and I want to tell you about the trip back to Washington and the Midwest um, on today's program, as well as updating you on some of the things we missed. Uh, we, we did uh, air a repeat program, one of the best programs we've ever done on last, uh, last week. That was with uh, our interview with Ambassador Joseph Wilson. Uh, Joe Wilson promises to be on this show again in October, and we're certainly looking forward to bringing him back. But we don't like to go uh, with a rerun if we can avoid it, so we'll uh, do our best to, to minimize that in the future. Now, for the, today's program, we were going to bring you a fantastic guest, uh, someone who is um, uh, truly one of the movers and shakers of the United States, Peter G. Peterson. Mr. Peterson is the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and has quite a distinguished background uh, in finance, in industry, and in government. He was Richard Nixon's Commerce Secretary in 1972. Mr. Peterson currently has a bestseller out there, Running on Empty. But I've decided that uh, this is a topic that is very difficult to scrunch down into a 20-minute interview, uh, the, the issue of uh, the our, our federal deficits and why Social Security may not be there for you if you're my age. And of course, I'm several decades older than a typical student here at UCD. Uh, these are issues that need to be dealt with, I think, in some detail. So what we're going to do is next week put together a, um, a, a segment that will go into some of the issues in the depth that they require and then weave into that our interview with Peter Peterson. I think that'll be uh, better for you, the listener, and well, just better. Now, the trip back to Washington um, was to attend a public radio news director's conference, or at least in my case, to hang out with some of the good people who are public radio news directors across the country. I did not actually attend the conference. KDVS's general manager did, however, and I'm hoping that Steve Valentino will uh, join us later in today's program to talk a little bit about, um, about what he learned in the conference. I certainly uh, had a grand time hanging out with these people. They are bright, they're informed, they're fun, they're funny. I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with people like that? Uh, while uh, Stephen and I were back there, we took the opportunity to uh, go visit someone who's appeared on this program as a guest, Senator Eugene McCarthy. We went and visited him at his home. He's 87 years old. He is uh, quite, quite a delightful man to talk to and uh, regaled us with very interesting stories about Lyndon Johnson, uh, the U.S. Senate, um, running for president, etc., 
and I hope that um, I'll be able to uh, to go into some of that. But if Steve can join me later, we'll we'll try and uh, tell you a little bit about our visit. The Week magazine on the August 8th issue mentioned Senator Eugene McCarthy in discussing the upcoming political conventions. Of course, the Democratic convention has now taken place. The Republicans uh, will start later this month and extend into September. Uh, it was noted by The Week that the 1968 Democratic convention in Chicago uh, saw Eugene McCarthy come to the convention with a large following of reformers who shared a passionate opposition to the Vietnam War, something he told you listeners about on this show. His major opponent was Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who hadn't run in a single primary. When party leaders made it clear that their old stalwart Humphrey would get the nomination anyway, McCarthy delegates joined other anti-war protesters out in the street. Um, this, this was history, and uh, it was interesting to be able to ask the senator, as we did on this show, whether he, th- he thought he could have beaten Humphrey uh, had Bobby Kennedy not entered the race and taken uh, so many delegates away. He didn't think that he could have. But that actually was one of the last political conventions in this country to actually have any drama to it. It was drama that backfired against the Democratic Party, as the party was seen as uh, divided and, uh, and unruly. While the Republicans never made that mistake, uh, <laughs> by 1972, uh, while well, both parties decided to reform the delegate selection process, so that most were chosen directly by voters in primaries or by party caucuses. This made for a rather um, uh, a smooth um, ascension to whoever it was who was going to be the, the leader. And we've seen this year that John Kerry has uh, surged to the, uh, the nomination virtually without any input from voters. But this, uh, this pales in comparison to what the Republicans have done ever since uh, 68. In 1972, uh, again, I'm looking back to the week, which is a really ex- excellent article you may want to check out. In 1972, Nixon took advantage of the new rules to hold a convention that has been called the first televised coronation. <laughs> and that stage manage event has served as the model for conventions for both parties ever since. As I recall, the actual vote in that convention was Congressman Pete McCloskey won... Richard Nixon, 1,308. That's democracy in action. Now, on my trip um, back east, I I, I missed John Kerry by one day in Hannibal, Missouri. I would have liked to have seen the Kerry Edwards show up close and personal, but uh, dang, just missed it. Now, the the, the day before that, both men had appeared in Davenport, Iowa, uh, blocks apart. I don't know whether you caught on Marketplace a couple of days ago, uh, the discussion about the two campaigns, but it's a fact that uh, the Bush-Cheney campaign is letting you come if you have a ticket and an invitation. A John Q. citizen is not welcome to attend a Bush-Cheney rally. You have to be vetted by the Republican Party. In some cases, you have to sign a loyalty oath before you're allowed to attend. I'm not making this up. So poor John Kerry has to uh, operate at somewhat of a disadvantage. People who show up at his rallies may not have signed a Kerry loyalty oath. You know, think about this a minute. Doesn't doesn't this scare you? You have to sign a loyalty oath to attend a rally? It's true. Let's talk a little bit about Washington, D.C. If you've never been, you certainly should go. There is a, The Smithsonian Institution alone could take a week's worth of your time. Uh, the Air and Space Museum, the Natural History Museum, um, it's, just, it's, it's a fabulous look back at, uh, at uh, um, well, what this nation is all about from every different way you want to look at it. And the gift shop wasn't bad either. I was able to obtain 
Great Speeches of the 20th Century, a four-CD set for only $39.99. We're going to be using that on this program in the future to bring you a lot of uh, sound clips from American history. I could have shown a little more restraint, though, perhaps, in some of the impulse buys. I probably didn't need a mouse pad that says, My God, this is a hell of a job, President Warren G. Harding. But I couldn't resist. You don't see Harding quoted that often. And uh, I did snag the Harding uh, mouse pad because sometime between now and Election Day, we're going to tell you a little bit about Warren G. Harding. Uh, Because American history is repeating itself, I think, uh, with the current administration, redoing much of what took place in the 1920s under President Harding. I also should have probably shown some restraint in not buying simulated amber candy, (laughs) which they were selling in the Natural History Museum, which was a hard candy that includes actual edible insects. Sales were not brisk. They were selling Iraqi playing cards as well. I didn't get one in the Smithsonian, but I did get one later at the George Patton Museum in Fort Knox, Kentucky. But I want to put a plug in for Washington, D.C. It's a uh, a wide-open city. It has a nice feel to it. It's somewhat like a larger version of Sacramento in some respects. Uh, Well, (laughs) I shouldn't say that. Our nation's capital, the District of Columbia, uh, is something that you really need to go to if you haven't. Let me just leave it at that. It's easy to get around, and there's plenty to see. Now, I did note when I was there, there was an alert. Uh, Tom Ridge no- noted that uh, data that we'd obtained uh, that appeared to be years old suddenly dictated that we go on alert in, in uh, New Jersey, New York, and Washington. Now, a lot of people were very suspicious about the possibly political nature of the timing of these announcements. Uh, Ridge later had to go and defend himself for this. But I must confess, um, I have my doubts, particularly in light of the High Value Targets article that appeared in the New Republic magazine on July 29th. The New Republic noted that this afternoon, Pakistan's Interior Minister Faisal Saleh Hayat announced that Pakistani forces had captured Ahmed Kalfan Gailani, who is a Tanzanian al-Qaeda operative, wanted in connection with the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. The New Republic noted the timing of this announcement should be of interest to its readers, noting that earlier in the month, John Judas, Spencer Ackerman, and Masood Ansari had broken a story of how the Bush administration was pressuring Pakistani officials to apprehend high-value targets, HVTs, in time for the November election, and to coincide with the Democratic National Convention. Though the capture of Mr. Ghilani took place in central Pakistan a few days back at the time of the announcement, the actual announcement came hours before John Kerry's acceptance speech in Boston. Coincidence? Well, the New Republic didn't think so. What do you think, dear listener? The New Republic said that it learned that Pakistani security officials have been told they must produce HVTs by the election. According to one source in Pakistan's powerful inter-services intelligence, the ISI, the Pakistani government is really desperate and wants to flush out bin Laden and his associates after the latest pressure from the U.S. administration to deliver before the U.S. elections. They note that introducing target dates for al-Qaeda operative captures is a new twist in U.S.-Pakistani counterterrorism relations. No timetables were discussed in 2002 or 2003, 
But the November election is apparently bringing a new deadline to the hunt. Now, we've noted that no less than Madeleine Albright has uh, speculated openly, although I, I believe she did this over in the U.K., that the U.S. may have already captured Osama bin Laden and is just waiting to produce him at the right politically opportune time. Uh, even Bob Dole uh, got involved in, in Bob Dole's quite a quite an amusing Republican, came back and said, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, they got him. They're holding him in the Watergate. All right. I, 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 shouldn't, I should talk a little bit more about my trip back east. It was such a rare opportunity to see some things I'd never seen. Uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield was one thing I'd never visited. That was truly fascinating. If any of you are familiar with uh, Civil War history at all, you know that the Civil War turned on, uh, on the day in July 1863 when both Vicksburg fell to Union forces and Confederate forces in Pennsylvania were turned back. That was at Gettysburg. It was the largest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere, hopefully ever will be fought in the Western Hemisphere. And I gotta say, it was pretty amazing to have stood there on Little Round Top and noted where Union forces that were, you know, in danger of being, um, uh, you know, overwhelmed by uh, advancing Confederates. I mean, had that, had that hill fallen, uh, people think the battle probably would have gone to the Confederates, to Robert E. Lee, and that the Civil War might have taken a much different turn. Uh, the Sons of the South, if you saw that Ken Burns uh, documentary on the Civil War, historian Shelby Foote noted that uh, every Southern boy dreams of that day back in 1863 where if, uh, if Bobby Lee had just prevailed there at Gettysburg, uh, the South might have been able to win the war. Well, might. It's very unlikely the South could have ever won the U.S. Civil War, but it may have been a much more prolonged bloodbath, a much more protracted affair, had not Gettysburg finally been a decisive victory for Union forces. It is worth noting that, um, that in spite of an overwhelming numerical superiority, uh, the Union was pretty much had rings run around it for years by, uh, by um, you know, superior leadership of, of the Southern armies. Something I found rather disturbing about the Gettysburg uh, battlefield has become such a part of American history that every single unit, every single state involved seems to have placed a monument somewhere on the battlefield. It seems like every 100 feet, there, that's maybe a slight exaggeration, but I mean, there are monuments everywhere to this unit, to that unit. I mean, and it's, um, it glorifies what, uh, you know, what was a very bloody, horrible day in American history. And, and you know, it's, it's a very sad matter that uh, we had to go to war to resolve the issue of slavery in this country. And that we lost something like 500,000 Americans in the process. If my memory serves me correct, more, more American lives were lost in the Civil War than all the rest of our wars combined. It's interesting to note these many years after the Civil War, an issue, a war that was fought to resolve the slavery issue, that we're going to get Probably only our fifth United States Senator of African-American background in the state of Illinois. This is because uh, Republican uh, uh, radio personality Alan Keyes has entered the race for the Illinois Senate. Uh, Barack Obama is black. Alan Keyes is black. So one thing seems certain that um, there'll be a black senator from Illinois come November. I found this story to be very interesting as I was driving across the country following it on the radio. Because when I was in Illinois, they were noting that upstate uh, Keys had shown up for a Republican rally. They noted that he's not from Illinois. 
Alan Cades is in fact a Maryland resident. In fact, he ran for Senate twice in Maryland and lost twice. Uh, But he decided to show up in Illinois and throw his hat into the ring because apparently, according to federal law, someone has until Election Day to establish residency. Now, since you don't have to live in Illinois to run to become an Illinois senator, I would like to take this opportunity to note that I, too, am throwing my hat in the ring. And I promise the citizens of Illinois that sometime between now and Election Day, I'll do what I can to establish residency in your state. All right, now I haven't had time to write my campaign speech for Illinois Senate, so I think what I'll do is I'll just steal Alan Keyes's and say the following. I will spend a good deal of my time listening to the people of this state. I might not know these streets yet and the neighborhoods and all the things that go to make up the everyday life of the people, but if in fact the people of Illinois still stand together on the American creed, still assert their right of self-government, still have the sense of responsible citizenship, then I believe I know their spirit and their conscience and their heart. Where is Ford Hayes? Ford is, is Ford around? I need Ford to write some speeches. I need to write some political blather just like Alan Keyes. You know, this, this sounds like it's going to be fun. Now, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to pick on African-Americans, but I did note when I was back in Washington, the Washington Post Sunday edition included a little blurb on former mayor Marion Barry, who's now running for city council once again. They, uh, they were talking to Barry about his history and about how he used to go to church. He was trying to talk about where God, the role of God in an election campaign. And Barry noted the following. My mother used to make me go to church. I hated it. I sat in the back. The offering plate came around, and I'd take a nickel and dime out of it and go get some ice cream. One time my mother caught me, and she hit me right in church. Well, I think that was somewhat of a prelude to Marion Barry being photographed by the FBI smoking crack in a hotel room with a prostitute. But, you know, I, I got to give the guy credit. He's pulling himself up by the bootstraps and running for city council again. All right, I'm going to have more to say about the trip in the second and third segments, but I want to weave in some, uh, some catching up that we need to do on news items across the country here and the world. I don't know whether you noticed, but Linda Ronstadt uh, was thrown out of a Las Vegas casino after she dedicated her song Desperado to Michael Moore and the film Fahrenheit 911. Supposedly hundreds of audience members booed, threw their drinks at her, and stormed out demanding their money back. The Aladdin Hotel president, Bill Timmons, uh, noted that she praised more than all of a sudden bedlam broke out. The Aladdin ordered Ronstadt to leave the hotel. She was escorted from the premises and told she would not be welcome back. Yes, this was the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, United States of America, not St. Petersburg, Russia. This was happening right here in the U.S. We're looking very forward next week to bringing you Peter G. Peterson and talking about his book, Running on Empty. He certainly has a lot to say about uh, something like the following. Uh, White House officials said two weeks ago that the federal deficit would be about $420 billion this year, which I believe uh, was $50 billion higher than last year's deficit, which was the previous all-time record. 
Now, the administration's spin on it was this was fifth, this was $100 billion less than they predicted in February, and they showed that the smaller, and they said that the smaller shortfall showed that the economy was improving. Of course, it's interesting how the Democrats are trying to seize this issue since they never seem to find an entitlement program they don't like. That's according to Pete Peterson and accurate. But that's something for next week's program. Uh, Running out of time for this segment, so let me close with this little item. And, and I, I'm actually, I'm not making this one up. Speaking of Russia, Aeroflot flight attendants got drunk on a recent flight from Moscow to Siberia. A passenger then complained along the way that the in-flight meal hadn't been served. The attendants then attacked and beat him. Back in the U.S., back in the U.S., back in the U.S. as all. All right, that's it for the first segment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for our second and third segments, where we will talk about, oh, I don't know, some interesting stuff. Yes,